Chapter Two of the Ethics of Belief. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Krantz. The Ethics of Belief by William Kingdon Clifford. Chapter Two: The Weight of Authority. Are we then to become universal skeptics, doubting everything? afraid always to put one foot before the other until we have personally tested the firmness of the road are we to deprive ourselves of the help and guidance of that vast body of knowledge which is daily growing upon the world because neither we nor any other person can possibly test a hundredth part of it by immediate experiment or observation and because it would not be completely proved if we did shall we steal and tell lies because we have had no personal experience wide enough to justify the belief that it is wrong to do so there is no practical danger that such consequences will ever follow from scrupulous care and self-control in the matter of belief those men who have most nearly done their duty in this respect have found that certain great principles and these most fitted for the guidance of life have stood out more and more clearly in proportion to the care and honesty with which they were tested and have acquired in this way a practical certainty the beliefs about right and wrong which guide our actions in dealing with men and society and the beliefs about physical nature which guide our actions in dealing with animate and inanimate bodies these never suffer from investigation they can take care of themselves without being propped up by acts of faith the clamor of paid advocates or the suppression of contrary evidence moreover there are many cases in which it is our duty to act upon probabilities although the evidence is not such as to justify present belief because it is precisely by such action and by observation of its fruits that evidence is got which may justify future belief so that we have no reason to fear lest a habit of conscientious inquiry should paralyze the actions of our daily life but because it is not enough to say it is wrong to believe on unworthy evidence without saying also what evidence is worthy we shall now go on to inquire under what circumstances it is lawful to believe on the testimony of others and then further we shall inquire more generally when and why we may believe that which goes beyond our own experience or even beyond the experience of mankind in what cases then let us ask in the first place is the testimony of a man unworthy of belief he may say that which is untrue either knowingly or unknowingly in the first case he is lying and his moral character is to blame in the second case he is ignorant or mistaken and it is only his knowledge or his judgment which is in fault in order that we may have the right to accept his testimony as ground for believing what he says we must have reasonable grounds for trusting his veracity that he is really trying to speak the truth so far as he knows it his knowledge that he has had opportunities of knowing the truth about this matter and his judgment that he has made proper use of those opportunities in coming to the conclusion which he affirms however plain and obvious these reasons may be so that no man of ordinary intelligence reflecting upon the matter could fail to arrive at them 
it is nevertheless true that a great many persons do habitually disregard them in weighing testimony of the two questions equally important to the trustworthiness of a witness is he dishonest and may he be mistaken the majority of mankind are perfectly satisfied if one can with some show of probability be answered in the negative the excellent moral character of a man is alleged as ground for accepting his statements about things which he cannot possibly have known a mohammedan for example will tell us that the character of his prophet was so noble and majestic that it commands the reverence even of those who do not believe in his mission so admirable was his moral teaching so wisely put together the great social machine which he created that his precepts have not only been accepted by a great portion of mankind but have actually been obeyed his institutions have on the one hand rescued the negro from savagery and on the other hand have taught civilization to the advancing west and although the races which held the highest forms of his faith and most fully embodied his mind and thought have all been conquered and swept away by barbaric tribes yet the history of their marvellous attainments remains as an imperishable glory to islam are we to doubt the word of a man so great and so good can we suppose that this magnificent genius this splendid moral hero has lied to us about the most solemn and sacred matters the testimony of mohammed is clear that there is but one god and that he mohammed is his prophet that if we believe in him we shall enjoy everlasting felicity but that if we do not we shall be damned this testimony rests on the most awful of foundations the revelation of heaven itself for was he not visited by the angel gabriel as he fasted and prayed in his desert cave and allowed to enter into the blessed fields of paradise surely god is god and mohammed is the prophet of god what should we answer to this mussulman first no doubt we should be tempted to take exception against his view of the character of the prophet and the uniformly beneficial influence of islam before we could go with him altogether in these matters it might seem that we should have to forget many terrible things of which we have heard or read but if we chose to grant him all these assumptions for the sake of argument and because it is difficult both for the faithful and for infidels to discuss them fairly and without passion still we should have something to say which takes away the ground of his belief and therefore shows that it is wrong to entertain it namely this the character of mohammed is excellent evidence that he was honest and spoke the truth so far as he knew it but it is no evidence at all that he knew what the truth was what means could he have of knowing that the form which appeared to him to be the angel gabriel was not a hallucination and that his apparent visit to paradise was not a dream grant that he himself was fully persuaded and honestly believed that he had the guidance of heaven and was the vehicle of a supernatural revelation how could he know that this strong conviction was not a mistake let us put ourselves in his place we shall find that the more completely we endeavor to realize what passed through his mind the more clearly we shall perceive that the prophet could have had no adequate ground for the belief in his own inspiration it is most probable that he himself never doubted of the matter or thought of asking the question 
but we are in the position of those to whom the question has been asked and who are bound to answer it it is known to medical observers that solitude and want of food are powerful means of producing delusion and of fostering a tendency to mental disease let us suppose then that i like mohammed go into desert places to fast and pray what things can happen to me which will give me the right to believe that i am divinely inspired suppose that i get information apparently from a celestial visitor which upon being tested is found to be correct i cannot be sure in the first place that the celestial visitor is not a figment of my own mind and that the information did not come to me unknown at the time to my consciousness through some subtle channel of sense but if my visitor were a real visitor and for a long time gave me information which was found to be trustworthy this would indeed be good ground for trusting him in the future as to such matters as fall within human powers of verification but it would not be ground for trusting his testimony as to any other matters for although his tested character would justify me in believing that he spoke the truth so far as he knew yet the same question would present itself what ground is there for supposing that he knows even if my supposed visitor had given me such information subsequently verified by me as proved him to have means of knowledge about verifiable matters far exceeding my own this would not justify me in believing what he said about matters that are not at present capable of verification by man it would be ground for interesting conjecture and for the hope that as the fruit of our patient inquiry we might by and by attain to such a means of verification as should rightly turn conjecture into belief for belief belongs to man and to the guidance of human affairs no belief is real unless it guide our actions and those very actions supply a test of its truth but it may be replied the acceptance of islam as a system is just that action which is prompted by belief in the mission of the prophet and which will serve for a test of its truth is it possible to believe that a system which has succeeded so well is really founded upon a delusion not only have individual saints found joy and peace in believing and verified those spiritual experiences which are promised to the faithful but nations also have been raised from savagery or barbarism to a higher social state surely we are at liberty to say that the belief has been acted upon and that it has been verified it requires however but little consideration to show that what has really been verified is not at all the supernal character of the prophet's mission or the trustworthiness of his authority in matters which we ourselves cannot test but only his practical wisdom in certain very mundane things the fact that believers have found joy and peace in believing gives us the right to say that the doctrine is a comfortable doctrine and pleasant to the soul but it does not give us the right to say that it is true and the question which our conscience is always asking about that which we are tempted to believe is not is it comfortable and pleasant but is it true that the prophet preached certain doctrines and predicted that spiritual comfort would be found in them proves only his sympathy with human nature and his knowledge of it but it does not prove his superhuman knowledge of theology and if we admit for the sake of argument for it seems that we cannot do more 
that the progress made by moslem nations in certain cases was really due to the system formed and sent forth into the world by mohammed we are not at liberty to conclude from this that he was inspired to declare the truth about things which we cannot verify we are only at liberty to infer the excellence of his moral precepts or of the means which he devised for so working upon men as to get them obeyed or of the social and political machinery which he set up and it would require a great amount of careful examination into the history of those nations to determine which of these things had the greater share in the result so that here again it is the prophet's knowledge of human nature and his sympathy with it that are verified not his divine inspiration or his knowledge of theology if there were only one prophet indeed it might well seem a difficult and even an ungracious task to decide upon what points we would trust him and on what we would doubt his authority seeing what help and furtherance all men have gained in all ages from those who saw more clearly who felt more strongly and who sought the truth with more single heart than their weaker brethren but there is not only one prophet and while the consent of many upon that which as men they had real means of knowing and did know has endured to the end and been honorably built into the great fabric of human knowledge the diverse witness of some about that which they did not and could not know remains as a warning to us that to exaggerate the prophetic authority is to misuse it and to dishonor those who have sought only to help and further us after their power it is hardly in human nature that a man should quite accurately gauge the limits of his own insight but it is the duty of those who profit by his work to consider carefully where he may have been carried beyond it if we must needs embalm his possible errors along with his solid achievements and use his authority as an excuse for believing what he cannot have known we make of his goodness an occasion to sin to consider only one other such witness the followers of the buddha have at least as much right to appeal to individual and social experience in support of the authority of the eastern saviour the special mark of his religion it is said that in which it has never been surpassed is the comfort and consolation which it gives to the sick and sorrowful the tender sympathy with which it soothes and assuages all the natural griefs of men and surely no triumph of social morality can be greater or nobler than that which has kept nearly half the human race from persecuting in the name of religion if we are to trust the accounts of his early followers he believed himself to have come upon earth with a divine and cosmic mission to set rolling the wheel of the law being a prince he divested himself of his kingdom and of his free will became acquainted with misery that he might learn how to meet and subdue it could such a man speak falsely about solemn things and as for his knowledge was he not a man miraculous with powers more than man's he was born of woman without the help of man he rose into the air and was transfigured before his kinsmen at last he went up bodily into heaven from the top of adam's peak is not his word to be believed in when he testifies of heavenly things if there were only he and no other with such claims but there is mohammed with his testimony we cannot choose but listen to them both the prophet tells us that there is one god and that we shall live forever in joy or misery according as we believe in the prophet or not 
the buddha says that there is no god and that we shall be annihilated by and by if we are good enough both cannot be infallibly inspired one or other must have been the victim of a delusion and thought he knew that which he really did not know who shall dare to say which and how can we justify ourselves in believing that the other was not also deluded we are led then to these judgments following the goodness and greatness of a man do not justify us in accepting a belief upon the warrant of his authority unless there are reasonable grounds for supposing that he knew the truth of what he was saying and there can be no grounds for supposing that a man knows that which we without ceasing to be men could not be supposed to verify if a chemist tells me who am no chemist that a certain substance can be made by putting together other substances in certain proportions and subjecting them to a known process i am quite justified in believing this upon his authority unless i know anything against his character or his judgment for his professional training is one which tends to encourage veracity and the honest pursuit of truth and to produce a dislike of hasty conclusions and slovenly investigation and i have reasonable ground for supposing that he knows the truth of what he is saying for although i am no chemist i can be made to understand so much of the methods and processes of the science as makes it conceivable to me that without ceasing to be man i might verify the statement i may never actually verify it or even see any experiment which goes towards verifying it but still i have quite reason enough to justify me in believing that the verification is within the reach of human appliances and powers and in particular that it has been actually performed by my informant his result the belief to which he has been led by his inquiries is valid not only for himself but for others it is watched and tested by those who are working in the same ground and who know that no greater service can be rendered to science than the purification of accepted results from the errors which may have crept into them it is in this way that the result becomes common property a right object of belief which is a social affair and matter of public business thus it is to be observed that his authority is valid because there are those who question it and verify it that it is precisely this process of examining and purifying that keeps alive among investigators the love of that which shall stand all possible tests the sense of public responsibility as of those whose work if well done shall remain as the enduring heritage of mankind but if my chemist tells me that an atom of oxygen has existed unaltered in weight and rate of vibration throughout all time i have no right to believe this on his authority for it is a thing which he cannot know without ceasing to be man he may quite honestly believe that this statement is a fair inference from his experiments but in that case his judgment is at fault a very simple consideration of the character of experiments would show him that they never can lead to results of such a kind that being themselves only approximate and limited they cannot give us knowledge which is exact and universal no eminence of character and genius can give a man authority enough to justify us in believing him when he makes statements implying exact or universal knowledge again an arctic explorer may tell us that in a given latitude and longitude he has experienced such and such a degree of cold that the sea was of such a depth and the ice of such a character 
we should be quite right to believe him in the absence of any stain upon his veracity it is conceivable that we might without ceasing to be men go there and verify his statement it can be tested by the witness of his companions and there is adequate ground for supposing that he knows the truth of what he is saying but if an old whaler tells us that the ice is three hundred feet thick all the way up to the pole we shall not be justified in believing him for although the statement may be capable of verification by man it is certainly not capable of verification by him with any means and appliances which he has possessed and he must have persuaded himself of the truth of it by some means which does not attach any credit to his testimony even if therefore the matter affirmed is within the reach of human knowledge we have no right to accept it upon authority unless it is within the reach of our informant's knowledge what shall we say of that authority more venerable and august than any individual witness the time-honored tradition of the human race an atmosphere of beliefs and conceptions has been formed by the labors and struggles of our forefathers which enables us to breathe amid the various and complex circumstances of our life it is around and about us and within us we cannot think except in the forms and processes of thought which it supplies is it possible to doubt and to test it and if possible is it right we shall find reason to answer that it is not only possible and right but our bounden duty that the main purpose of the tradition itself is to supply us with the means of asking questions of testing and inquiring into things that if we misuse it and take it as a collection of cut-and-dried statements to be accepted without further inquiry we are not only injuring ourselves here but by refusing to do our part towards the building up of the fabric which shall be inherited by our children we are tending to cut off ourselves and our race from the human line let us first take care to distinguish a kind of tradition which especially requires to be examined and called in question because it especially shrinks from inquiry suppose that a medicine man in central africa tells his tribe that a certain powerful medicine in his tent will be propitiated if they kill their cattle and that the tribe believe him whether the medicine was propitiated or not there are no means of verifying but the cattle are gone still the belief may be kept up in the tribe that propitiation has been effected in this way and in a later generation it will be all the easier for another medicine man to persuade them to a similar act here the only reason for belief is that everybody has believed the thing for so long that it must be true and yet the belief was founded on fraud and has been propagated by credulity that man will undoubtedly do right and be a friend of men who shall call it in question and see that there is no evidence for it help his neighbors to see as he does and even if need be go into the holy tent and break the medicine the rule which should guide us in such cases is simple and obvious enough that the aggregate testimony of our neighbors is subject to the same conditions as the testimony of any one of them namely we have no right to believe a thing true because everybody says so unless there are good grounds for believing that some one person at least has the means of knowing what is true and is speaking the truth so far as he knows it however many nations and generations of men are brought into the witness box they cannot testify to anything which they do not know 
every man who has accepted the statement from somebody else without himself testing and verifying it is out of court his word is worth nothing at all and when we get back at last to the true birth and beginning of the statement two serious questions must be disposed of in regard to him who first made it was he mistaken in thinking that he knew about this matter or was he lying this last question is unfortunately a very actual and practical one even to us at this day and in this country we have no occasion to go to la salette or to central africa or to lourdes for examples of immoral and debasing superstition it is only too possible for a child to grow up in london surrounded by an atmosphere of beliefs fit only for the savage which have in our own time been founded in fraud and propagated by credulity laying aside then such tradition as is handed on without testing by successive generations let us consider that which is truly built up out of the common experience of mankind this great fabric is for the guidance of our thoughts and through them of our actions both in the moral and in the material world in the moral world for example it gives us the conceptions of right in general of justice of truth of beneficence and the like these are given as conceptions not as statements or propositions they answer to certain definite instincts which are certainly within us however they came there that it is right to be beneficent is matter of immediate personal experience for when a man retires within himself and there finds something wider and more lasting than his solitary personality which says i want to do right as well as i want to do good to man he can verify by direct observation that one instinct is founded upon and agrees fully with the other and it is his duty so to verify this in all similar statements the tradition says also at a definite place and time that such and such actions are just or true or beneficent for all such rules a further inquiry is necessary since they are sometimes established by an authority other than that of the moral sense founded on experience until recently the moral tradition of our own country and indeed of all europe taught that it was beneficent to give money indiscriminately to beggars but the questioning of this rule and investigation into it led men to see that true beneficence is that which helps a man to do the work which he is most fitted for not that which keeps and encourages him in idleness and that to neglect this distinction in the present is to prepare pauperism and misery for the future by this testing and discussion not only has practice been purified and made more beneficent but the very conception of beneficence has been made wider and wiser now here the great social heirloom consists of two parts the instinct of beneficence which makes a certain side of our nature when predominant wish to do good to men and the intellectual conception of beneficence which we can compare with any proposed course of conduct and ask is this beneficent or not by the continual asking and answering of such questions the conception grows in breadth and distinctness and the instinct becomes strengthened and purified it appears then that the great use of the conception the intellectual part of the heirloom is to enable us to ask questions that it grows and is kept straight by means of these questions 
and if we do not use it for that purpose we shall gradually lose it altogether and be left with a mere code of regulations which cannot rightly be called morality at all such considerations apply even more obviously and clearly if possible to the store of beliefs and conceptions which our fathers have amassed for us in respect of the material world we are ready to laugh at the rule of thumb of the australian who continues to tie his hatchet to the side of the handle although the birmingham fitter has made a hole on purpose for him to put the handle in his people have tied up hatchets so for ages who is he that he should set himself up against their wisdom he has sunk so low that he cannot do what some of them must have done in the far distant past call in question an established usage and invent or learn something better yet here in the dim beginning of knowledge where science and art are one we find only the same simple rule which applies to the highest and deepest growths of that cosmic tree to its loftiest flower-tipped branches as well as to the profoundest of its hidden roots the rule namely that what is stored up and handed down to us is rightly used by those who act as the makers acted when they stored it up those who use it to ask further questions to examine to investigate who try honestly and solemnly to find out what is the right way of looking at things and of dealing with them a question rightly asked is already half answered said jacoby we may add that the method of solution is the other half of the answer and that the actual result counts for nothing by the side of these two for an example let us go to the telegraph where theory and practice grown each to years of discretion are marvelously wedded for the fruitful service of men ohm found that the strength of an electric current is directly proportional to the strength of the battery which produces it and inversely as the length of the wire along which it has to travel this is called ohm's law but the result regarded as a statement to be believed is not the valuable part of it the first half of the question what relation holds good between these quantities so put the question involves already the conception of strength of current and of strength of battery as quantities to be measured and compared it hints clearly that these are the things to be attended to in the study of electric currents the second half is the method of investigation how to measure these quantities what instruments are required for the experiment and how are they to be used the student who begins to learn about electricity is not asked to believe in ohm's law he is made to understand the question he is placed before the apparatus and he is taught to verify it he learns to do things not to think he knows things to use instruments and to ask questions not to accept a traditional statement the question which required a genius to ask it rightly is answered by a tyro if ohm's law were suddenly lost and forgotten by all men while the question and the method of solution remained the result could be rediscovered in an hour but the result by itself if known to a people who could not comprehend the value of the question or the means of solving it would be like a watch in the hands of a savage who could not wind it up or an iron steamship worked by spanish engineers in regard then to the sacred tradition of humanity we learn that it consists not in propositions or statements which are to be accepted and believed on the authority of the tradition 
but in questions rightly asked in conceptions which enable us to ask further questions and in methods of answering questions the value of all these things depends on their being tested day by day the very sacredness of the precious deposit imposes upon us the duty and the responsibility of testing it of purifying and enlarging it to the utmost of our power he who makes use of its results to stifle his own doubts or to hamper the inquiry of others is guilty of a sacrilege which centuries shall never be able to blot out when the labors and questionings of honest and brave men shall have built up the fabric of known truth to a glory which we in this generation can neither hope for nor imagine in that pure and holy temple he shall have no part nor lot but his name and his work shall be cast out into the darkness of oblivion for ever end of chapter two recording by pamela krantz